Well, good morning, Chevrolet Baptist Church. Good to see you guys again. It was a hearty good morning. All right, I like it. Good to see you guys again. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but just a few uh, weeks ago, actually, in March, uh, myself and my family were here with you all. So it's really nice to see you guys again. And it's really a privilege, honestly, to get invited back. You know, like, <laughs> you know you did decently well the first time, Lord willing, if you get invited back. So it's really nice to be here with you guys again this morning. Uh, we, of course, are praying for Pastor John, and I've been praying for him this week. And even as I was preparing this message, I was just thinking of him and thinking of you. Although I may not know you personally all that well, I do know some things about you. And uh, I, know, I know the reality is, is that regardless of what your experience in life is, afflictions are a reality. Afflictions, suffering, tests, trials, temptations, all of those things are true of every single person on the face of this earth, and especially true for followers of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question as we begin this morning. When trials come, what consoles your soul? When you're confronted with the worst, the very worst of this world, where do you go in order to make sense of it all? Think of the last trial that you went through, or you've experienced, you know, big or small. Where did you go first in order to find solace for your soul? This morning, we're going to turn to the only place where we should go to console the soul. We're going to look into God's word as a means to get to know God's son. And when you find yourself in a place where you're wondering, what should I do when you don't know what to do? Well, the place I often go, and the place that I've been most recently spending time is, is in the Psalms. And when you think of the Psalms, which of the Psalms stands head and shoulders above the other Psalms when it comes to God's word, speaking about God's word? Can you think of it? When God words, God's word in the Psalms speaks about God's word, you're probably thinking of Psalm 119. That's exactly where we're going to be going this morning. Psalm 119 is a massive psalm. It's a complex psalm. It's complex in its structure, in its unique ways compared to the other 149 psalms. Psalm 119 is like looking into like one of those kaleidoscopes, right? You see many elements of the other 149 psalms in Psalm 119, but they're refracted, they're reframed showing different and unique angles of God's character and his nature. And depending on the life circumstances that you uh, have, and depending on the life circumstances that you point your Psalm 119 kaleidoscope towards, you'll see different sides of God's very essence in the variety of life's situations. In 176 verses, Psalm 119 is not only the longest psalm, in all of the Psalms, but it's actually the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's a wisdom Psalm, and as a wisdom Psalm, 119 is carefully constructed as an acrostic poem, framed by 22, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza contains eight verses, each word in each verse beginning with the same Hebrew letter. In it, each stanza communicates a fresh aspect of God's law and the wonders and the beauty and the benefits 
of God's law. In Psalm 119, the psalmist poetically uses eight different terms for God's written revelation to us. We see these words in the ESV, they're translated law, promise, word, statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies, and precepts. So then God's law is mentioned in every single verse of Psalm 119, all 176 verses. So basically to say it in a sentence, Psalm 119 is like the ABCs of God's word. Now, despite the fact that Psalm 119 is centered around the frequent use of these eight terms related to God's word, surprisingly, these are not the words that are most frequently used in this psalm. The words that are most frequently repeated in this psalm, do you know what they are? It's a bit of a trick question, but I, I, maybe I heard it. John, did you say that? Close, yes. Words like I, me, my, Mine, you, yours. These first and second person plural singular, excuse me, uh, first and second person singular pronouns. I, me, mine, you, your, yours. In these verses that we're gonna be in this morning, we'll see those pronouns used 14 times in just eight verses alone. And what does that teach us? It teaches us that there's an intimacy here between the psalmist and between God. So then in Psalm 119, it stands as the most extensive I to you sort of conversation in the Bible. David Paulson, one of the, the, the great fathers of biblical counseling, he said it like this, Psalm 119 is torrential, not topical. It's relentless, not repetitive. It's personal, not propositional. Psalm 119 is a personal prayer. It's about talking to God and not necessarily teaching about him. And we hear it in what a man says out loud in God's presence. So let's look into just one of those IDU conversations, Psalm 119, verses 49, 56. If you have a Bible near you, it's on page 513 uh, in, in the Bibles that are around you there. Now, while we can't be entirely certain who wrote this, the psalmist discovered that he could find supernatural strength in life's most challenging circumstances, simply through the discipline of remembering. Just remembering. And in verses 49 to 56, God guides us to his agenda for us when we're in the midst of trials, when we're in the midst of afflictions. So let's read it together. Psalm 119, verse 49 to 56. The word says this. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. 
So here's the big idea this morning. When afflictions come, we must remember to remember. And what specifically are we to remember? Well, three main points in this message. Number one, remember the word. Secondly, remember the rules. Third, remember the name. Remember the word, verses 49 to 51. Remember the rules, verses 52 to 54. And remember the name, verses 55 and 56. We must remember to remember. And these three main points are pulled basically straight from the text. Look again in your Bible. You can see the word remember clearly written twice there in verses 49 and then in 55. Do you see it? And then if you kind of look through the lattice a little bit, uh, in the translation from Hebrew to English, we see that same word for remember. The Hebrew word is zakhar, zaher, actually. And it's used in verse 52. Here the ESV translate, uh, translates a little loosely. Think I, when I think of your rules. Another way to just say remember. And surprisingly, this is the only time in all of Psalm 119 where the word remember appears at all. And so number one, we must remember the word. Remember the Lord's prophetic promises. Again, those verses, 49 to 51. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. So again, in this I to you sort of communication, here in verse 49, the psalmist is not saying, when insolent people deride me, I remember your word, God. What he's actually asking there in that first line is that he's, he's asking God to remember his word that he promised to the psalmist. Uh, personally, I think the psalmist is David. And what the psalmist is asking is, is he's asking God to act in conformity with an existing commitment that God had already made to him. And in his affliction, the writer is prayerfully invoking God that he would perform in the present that which he promised to him in the past. Have you ever prayed a prayer of desperation like this before? Like, have you ever declared your desperation to God in a situation of suffering or affliction? You know, to, to pray a prayer like, God, I'm hurting over here. Can't you see? God, how long is this going to last? I feel like it's been going on forever. I'm waiting on you, God. I'm losing hope. I'm failing in strength. Lord, this situation is really bad, and it's been bad, and now it just went from bad to even worse. Did you forget about me? Have you ever prayed desperately like that? I have. Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you as if he ever could? I have. The psalmist has. We don't know the specifics of these afflictions that we see in verse 50, but if it was David who wrote this, we know that he lived a life of many afflictions. Some afflictions in David's life were trials. And sadly, some of David's afflictions 
or consequences because of his sin. What about your life? It's been said that if you're alive, you'll feel pain. And if you feel pain, congratulations, you're still alive. Afflictions come to all of us at all times and in every way. And now before we get too far in this passage, it might be wise for us to define what we mean when we talk about afflictions. Here's a definition for you. Afflictions are the painful circumstances of life that are allowed by God in my life in order to change my conduct and my character. Afflictions are the painful circumstances of my life that are allowed by God in my life in order to change my context, conduct and my character. My conduct, that's what I do. And then, of course, our character, that's who, uh, who we are. So afflictions in this life signal to us that God is seeking to recalibrate. He's seeking to make some, perhaps some adjustments in our actions, in our attitudes, in our conduct, in our character. God always has purposes in the midst of affliction. We tend to view the tests of uh, afflictions and trials and troubles as bad things, but in the hands of a sovereign God, we know that afflictions are actually good. They are good. The experiences of affliction are, are painful. There, there's no doubt about that. But the results of affliction are ordained by God, and they're ordained for our good and for his glory. And you're probably like, all right, Troy, I'm going to need some verses to back that up. I came prepared, all right? Psalm 34, 19, David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Psalm 119, 71, just a few verses beyond this. The psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. How about Jesus in John 16, He promises us some things. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. How about 2 Corinthians 4, 17? For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or how about Peter? In 1 Peter 5, 10, one of my favorite verses to consider when in suffering and in trial. He says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So from David, his testimony, from Jesus, his words, from Paul, from Peter, all over the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we even speak about Job, all over the Bible, we see God uses the painful and challenging circumstances of life to challenge us to grow. So what should we do when we're faced with tests? When we're faced with trials? When we're faced with temptations? When affliction of any kind comes our way? According to this passage in these few verses right here, we must remember the word. The Lord's prophetic promises to us. 
The psalmist here is reminding us to keep on our biblical blinders on, right, in the midst of affliction. Not completely blinding us to ignore the affliction, but rather just keeping us from turning to the left or to the right so that we would remain focused on the right things, that we would remain focused vertically on the Lord even in our afflictions. So again, let me ask you, when you are in affliction, is God's word, is it enough for you? Is God's word sufficient for your affliction in times of trial? Do you run to other lesser sources of comfort or do you remain stayed on God and his word? Where do you often, most often look to mitigate your miseries? And where should you look? Next time, where can you look? And where will you choose to look? The application of these verses is that we should remember to remember the Lord's prophetic promises. What he has promised in the past will conform us to the image of Christ, but will also comfort us in the present and give us hope for the future. You can see that in verses 49 to 51. The word hope, promise, giving life, Regardless of the insolent that deride, I do not turn away from your law. Let's continue reading on in verse 52 to 54. Verse 52 says this, When I think of your rules of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of of my sojourning. Now again, the word remember is found here in verse 49, 52, and 55. And what is it exactly that we are to remember? Well, here in verse 52, the ESV says rules. That's the way it translates it. Uh, The New King James Version says judgments. The New American Standard Bible says ordinances. The NIV translates it laws. All of these words are getting at the idea of remembering God's eternal permanent, perpetual precedent of his precepts, which in turn provide for us protection. So number one, remember the word, the Lord's prophetic promises. Number two, remember the rules, the Lord's permanent precepts. Remember the rules, the Lord's permanent precepts. Just looking at this passage, where is it do you think that the psalmist's afflictions are found? And truthfully speaking, where are afflictions most generally seen and experienced in your life personally? Well, you can see what the verse says there in 52, excuse me, 51 and, and 53. They're found in the context of relationships. In the context of relationships. Verse 51, verse 53 describes uh, people that are around this psalmist, the insolent, the wicked, There's apparently a relational component here to this psalmist's afflictions that he's experiencing. So this begs the question, who are these wicked, who are these insolent people, right? What do they say? What do they do? In your life, it might sound a little something like this. It might sound like a coworker who mocks you for your integrity and your honesty as you do your job. Oh, you think you're better than us? You think you're going to do it the right way, the honest way? Oh, okay. 
Playing by the rules never got anybody anywhere. The guy in that corner office, he stepped on some heads to get there. Or how about a friend who, who tells you in the midst of uh, marital struggles, just divorce her already, man. Or maybe just separate first, and then eventually you kind of work your way towards that end. Just cut her loose. You'll be happier if you are single. I know I am. Or what about a boss who says, why are you being so weak on this project? Man up, take charge of the situation, and fudge those numbers like I told you to. Sweep it under the rug. It's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Or sadly, oftentimes, a person who is speaking like this is even maybe a spouse. Oh, now that you're going to church, you're holier than thou, aren't you? I know who you really are. I know what you're really like when no one's looking. You're not faking me out. You are faking yourself out. You're a fake. You're a fool. Have you ever experienced opposition like that verbally from someone before? If you have, you can see how in verse 53, the psalmist describes those accusatory words that press against your soul as ones that seize him with hot indignation. Have you ever been that mad before because of the insolent and the words of the wicked? Not only mad because of what they say to you, but upset because of just how lost, indignant people are. Yet when we're tempted to burn with indignation, remembering God's word can cool us off to help us to move, to move graciously and compassionately towards those who deride us. In those moments of utter discouragement and frustration, we must, as the scripture teaches us, remember the rules, the rules of old, the things that were written for, for ancient, uh, ancient wisdom, right? The, the things that the Lord promises to provide his, his presence in, his precepts in, his protection in, and remembering in this sense is less a, a matter of memory and more a matter of intentionality. And even more so if you look at verse 54. When the words of the insolent and the wicked grow louder than the words of the Lord, what does the psalmist suggest? Do you see it there in verse 54? The writer suggests that God's statutes, statutes should be our songs in the house of our sojourning. When the words of the wicked grow stronger and stronger, then the songs of the saints should be proclaimed louder and longer. When affliction causes us to grow distant with God and disorients us in the ways of this world, a song, a song can take you back when those memories feel so far away. Songs have a way of helping us remember, don't they? That's why we teach them to our children. I think of those moments when you, you hear a song, perhaps a song that your mother sang to you when you were a child, and it just takes you right back. Or, or, or all of the fun memories that come flooding back when you hear that song from your favorite summer in high school. Or if you're in high school, that favorite summer when you were in middle school, right? Or the pride that comes from randomly catching a few bars of your college fight song somewhere, Right? or the first song you danced to at your wedding, or a worship song, or a hymn that ministered to you in a particular time of deep need. Songs have a way of helping us to remember. 
and as an exile sings the songs of his homeland, so the child of God as a stranger and a sojourner on this earth sings the songs of heaven, his true home. That's why our pastor uh, on Capitol Hill, he always talks about singing more songs about heaven, more songs about God's word. Why? To reorient, to recalibrate, to fix our minds not on this world, but instead the next, where our hope is and where he is. I recently met with a brother uh, from our church. He's new to attending our church. He's a younger guy. Uh, if you think of this guy in your mind's eye, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's a military guy. He's got the same haircut as I do. He's like, he's tough dude, right? He looks like he should be like an NFL uh, tight end or something. Big, huge, bulky guy. Uh, he's a new Christian, but his wife is not. And honestly, he's really grieved by that. So over coffee, I asked him a bit about the dynamics of their marriage, and I got to know his situation a little bit better. And sadly, his wife is opposed to joining us uh, to worship with us at, at Capitol Hill. And in favor of that, she goes to Mass on her own. So think about this. Sunday morning, perhaps even this morning, they, they woke up, they had breakfast together, they got ready, and then they just went to two separate places in the city, two separate places to go and seek worship and to go worship. And when I asked him about his first impressions of being at our church, so crazy. Compared to the times that he's been to Mass with his wife, uh, he began to just tear up right there in this coffee shop on Capitol Hill. And through his tears, this big, tough military guy looks at me and he said, I just love hearing God's people sing God's word. He said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. I, I've never seen men sing songs ever before. Never seen men sing like that with their whole hearts. I, I, he's like, I surprised myself by learning to love to sing too. And then with tears still in his eyes, he says, I'm sorry, I'm so emotional. But I, I just want my wife to know and to sing these songs from the bottom of her heart too. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. This brother knows what it means to find strength through God's statutes in song. So how's that going for you? When you feel distant from God or disoriented by this world, are you taking time to sing the songs of Scripture for the sake of your own spiritual strength? Are you meeting with other brothers and sisters in Christ to be open enough to, to, to sit and cry in a coffee shop, for that matter? To, to have them bear your burdens, right? And then can you take the time with brothers and sisters in Christ who can then take you to the one who ultimately cares to carry all of your afflictions? If not, open your life up to other brothers and sisters in such a way. And you will find that these statutes written in God's word can be your songs as you sojourn through the afflictions and the struggles of this life. So number one, remember the word, the Lord's prophetic promises. Number two, 
remember the rules, the Lord's permanent precepts. And lastly, remember the name. Remember the name, the Lord's personal presence. Follow along with me again in verses 55, 56. The psalmist says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Perhaps the most striking metaphorical language in these eight verses of this uh, stanza of Psalm 119 is remembering God's name in the night. What's true of the night, you ask? Well, obviously it's dark, right? Uh, Often at night you're just exhausted. Your body is spent. Time in the middle of the night is like really disorienting, right? Uh, If you wake up in the middle of the night, you're like aware of what hour it is, but you're restless at that hour when you should be resting. And another thing that's true of the night, it's like almost impossible to see things clearly, right? And that's exactly what afflictions are like. It's dark. It's exhausting. It's disorienting. You're restless. You can't see things clearly. So when the afflictions of life are like that, what should you and I do? You should remember the name. That's what the psalmist does here. He proclaims the personal covenant name of Almighty God, Yahweh. You can see it there in verse 55. O Lord, capital L-O-R-D. For all you theologians out there, that's what's known as the tetragrammaton, right? It's the transliterated form of God's personal name, Yahweh, spelled Y-H-W-H. And anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in the scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, it's referring to God's self-existence. It's referring to his very essence of his presence. This is the exact term that God used to reveal himself to Moses when he said, I am that I am. I'm Yahweh. It's the name that he's chosen to reveal himself to his people in a very personal way. Like a a child who in the middle of the night cries out, Daddy! So also we should cry out to our Abba Father, when we're in the middle of our nights and when we're in the middle of our needs. So the proclamation of the personal name of God, it prompts us to remember the presence of a personal God. In the midst of any affliction, do you know what you most need? You need to remember the promises that your personally present God has made to you, that he's near. And so is his law and the blessing of his precepts Think of Romans 10.8. What does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth, in your heart. A great biblical illustration of this is in Acts 16. Through the midst of the afflictions that Paul and Silas experienced. Do you recall what was happening with Paul and Silas in Acts 16? They were literally living out these exact verses in the midst of their night of affliction. Luke writes in Acts that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and then imprisoned in Philippi simply for healing a possessed slave girl. So here we find Paul and Silas with their beaten, broken, bloodied bodies thrown into the inner cell of a Roman prison with their feet fastened into stocks. It's like, affliction? Check. Uh, Insolent men utterly deriding them? Check. Hot indignation because of the wicked? Check. 
A dark night of the soul? Yeah, this is the definition of it. Check. But then God miraculously intervenes. And don't you think in that moment, I'm perhaps, this is just conjecture, but I'm assuming that they're uh, remembering the name in the night. They're saying the name of Yahweh, perhaps. And then God miraculously intervenes. Acts 16, 25 recounts these words. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns unto God. And then the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosened. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Your statutes have been my songs. I remember your name in the night. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Paul and Silas, they remembered to remember. And they were liberated, even in their affliction. David remembered to remember. And God did great things through David for his name's sake. And if you can remember to remember word, rules, the name, God promises to bring comfort to your every affliction as well. Really, in all of this, what I'm trying to say is this. As followers of Jesus Christ, remember Christ. He alone is the true fulfillment of these eight things that are described here in Psalm 119. The law, the promise, the word, the statutes, the commandments, the rules, the testimonies, the precepts that David here refers to in Psalm 119. Jesus himself is all of those. He is the word and the one who all of Psalm 119 points to. So remember Christ in your affliction, but also remember Christ's affliction for you. Remember Christ as the only one who was personified as the word. Remember Christ as the only one who did not turn away from his father's law. Remember Christ as the only one who perfectly kept God's precepts. Remember Christ who persevered as a sojourner on this earth through the afflictions of the wicked and the insolent. And remember Christ who then personally atoned for the sins of those same wicked and insolent ones who derided him. Yes, even us. Remember Christ as the one who willingly died and the one who willingly was buried for three dark nights and who was raised to life by the power of Almighty God who promises life even after death. And if you would be willing this morning to turn from your sin and in, uh, in, in, in repentance and by faith to receive and apply the grace that Christ gives to your life as an exchange his life for yours, whether you find yourself in the afflictions of the selfishness of your own sin or whether you find yourself in the afflictions of sovereignly ordained suffering, Christ promises to remain faithful to his promises. Remember Christ who saves and sanctifies, who sustains and satisfies. As evidenced here in chapter 119, this is how the psalmist lived. This is what Paul believed. 
in both his living and in his dying. In fact, Paul wrote of this in his last letter while being found in even more affliction than he was in in Acts 16. In yet another imprisonment, staring at the face of his eventual death as a martyr for Christ. What were Paul's parting words? What did he say in his dying days? 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 13 tells us. Here's Paul's words. Paul said this through the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So again, as we close here, let me ask you, when trials come, what consoles your soul? And what should, or rather who should, I pray that each of us would remember to remember Christ in our afflictions and to remember Christ's affliction for you. Let's pray. Father God, you are faithful. You are trustworthy and you are good and you are true. Help us, Lord, to remember this. In our afflictions, help us to run to you first for our peace and help us to hear and obey your word as the promise of our hope. You tell us in your word of your faithfulness and we've also been taught of your faithfulness through the ways that even our trials teach us. So remind us again today that you can be trusted yet again. God, we've seen you save us. We've seen you sanctify us. We pray that you would sustain us, Lord, satisfy us yet again with your love. We pray that we would hold unswervingly to the hope that we confess, knowing that you, Lord, who has promised, is faithful. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.